to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is July 29th, 2016, and I am your host, William Hill. Uh, today we have the uh, privilege, the pleasure to sit down with Seminary President Dr. Joseph Piper, as uh, we usually do each month, to take questions from you, the listeners, on a wide variety and range of theological and practical topics. And so we'll get to that in just a minute. A couple things I, I want to bring everybody up to speed on, uh, related specifically to this uh, special signature edition of our podcast. Um, on our ConfessingOurHope.com website, there's a place where you can archi- you can download in groups of five archived versions of faith and practice that we've done. This is the 27th edition. That, uh, so that's 27 months of sound, theological, practical counsel, wisdom, advice from a man who's been laboring in this field for many, many years. And so I would encourage you to get those, download them. You can burn them to CD, pass them out to your friends, point them to the website to get them themselves. Um, Utilize that resource. 27 hours, that's like two seminary semesters of information and material, and, and it's very, very good. And so I'd encourage you to do that. In addition to that, um, we are um, no longer using the mobile app, as I've mentioned in the past, but you can get all of these programs on our Sermon Audio website. Um, they are specially tagged with the podcast, and so you can see all of the podcasts we've done. 117 recorded thus far, and so uh, look for more of, of this in the future. In addition to that, uh, would encourage those who listen to this program on a regular basis um, to support the seminary. Um, as many of you know, we, we depend on the prayerful support and donations of of our listeners and our supporters. And so if you're able, uh, even if it's just one time or uh, monthly, uh, you can go to our website, gpts.edu, and there's a donate uh, menu item there, and you can simply do it there. Any amount is helpful and great, and it helps keep the seminary moving forward, training men for the ministry. In addition to that, it helps keep the podcast going as well. So... Um, uh, avail yourself of that and, and help us, but pray for us as we do the podcast and as the s- uh, staff and faculty get ready for the new semester that's coming in just a f- very f- uh, few few weeks now. Uh, so that's a little bit of uh, housekeeping, and I, and I hope you, you you take advantage of those things that I have already mentioned. So, Dr. Pipe, it's great to have you back. Um, you've been on a whirlwind tour for the last three or four weeks. So before we do question one. Why don't you summarize for us? How did, how did things go? And, um, and Three how things. Did the Lord use First, it? we'll pray. Then I want to add to what you just said. And then I'll give an overview of the trip. Outstanding. Our Father in heaven, we bless you for you are our God. You are transcendent, high and lifted up, clothed in light, majestic, and yet stooping by your grace through your word and in the word, our Lord Jesus Christ, to bring us into yourself that we might know you, whom to know is life eternal. Thank you for your care for us. We pray now as we go through these questions that your spirit will enable me to answer clearly, illumine our understanding, cause us all to grow in grace and knowledge. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Let me just say, I don't think a final decision has been made about the mobile. I ordered what you had to say. Outstanding. So we might still have the mobile. Okay. Um, And then in addition to that, This is a really important time for us uh, financially. It always is from this time through November. Mm -hmm. uh, We are beginning the year with a bit of a budget stretch. So, yes, if we've got people out there that have not given to the seminary, we ask you prayerfully we consider doing so. If you are, if you can up your giving, that would be absolutely fantastic. 
And then two other announcements. Next Monday night, we start the uh, Summer Institute with Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn. It is dynamite. It's going to be the Westminster Assembly and Pastoral Ministry. We still have some spots available for that. You can do that live or online. The week after that is our special Southern Presbyterian series that Nick Wilborn will be teaching, which includes a vacation two days in the South Country of South Carolina. And uh, we've got uh, plenty of spots there. And so we really would like to have some of our listeners to join us for that class as well. Some of you have followed and prayed about the trip in Brazil. I didn't, uh, haven't posted any new material on my uh, podcast, on my blog, simply because of the schedule. I figured up I'd, between two weeks in Brazil and two weeks in South Africa, I preached 22 times. I taught a 39-hour course, yeah. and I had three days, literally, that I had no responsibility, not counting the travel days. So it was a whirlwind trip, but God greatly blessed. The Puritan Project in Brazil had two conferences, one in Beling up at the mouth of the Amazon, one in the resort south of Recife. They were 500 at the first, 530 at the second. So that's 1,030 people reached. Um, and then the one in Beling also did a, a live simulcast on the Internet, and there was another 300 people all around the world listening uh, to that. Then I preached in Recife. For one of our uh, graduate students, Paulo Brazil, preached three services at his church, flew down to Aracaju, and Monday and Tuesday night then uh, on evangelism, first night evangelism in the sovereignty of God, the second night on the Great Commission, flew Wednesday night to South Africa, got in Thursday morning, started teaching Thursday afternoon, taught uh, Thursday afternoon, Friday and Saturday, preached twice on Sunday, taught Monday, Tuesday morning, then we drove over to uh, the West about four-hour drive. I stayed on a farm, and I was able to go hunting. Some of you have seen my beast on Facebook. We got 250 pounds of meat uh, out of that uh, animal. It's going to all be turned into a South African form of jerky called biltong, which is absolutely delicious. Back to um, Johannesburg Thursday. Uh, flew then Friday to Cape Town. Did a three-message conference in Cape Town, preached twice on Sunday. I got involved in some church situations Monday, flew back Monday afternoon, preached all day Tuesday, flew home Wednesday night. Mm. So it was a whirlwind trip, but the Lord heard our prayers and greatly blessed. The responses continued to come. So just thank you for your prayers as well. And a shout-out to uh, some of our listeners usually listen live to uh, Faith and Practice down in Brazil. And speaking of Brazil, I met a new student yes. yesterday, um, Felipe. He listens to the podcast. He actually said he's, he is using it to help with his English. Good. So I was, well, his, uh, I was encouraged. His mother-in-law and father-in-law and brother-in-law were at the conference, the second one in Brazil, and then his mother and brother were there. And then his father came down to Hesife, uh, uh, on uh, up to Hesife on Sunday, I got to meet him as well. So it was nice to meet um, both sides of the family. Looking forward to getting to know Felipe and his wife. Yeah, yeah. in fact, he helped uh, <clears throat> help my wife and I move, uh, <laughs> load the truck anyway, yesterday. And so that was very kind of him to do that. Well, let's get into the questions, Dr. Piper. We have a number of them. And, and as you mentioned, we pro may or may not, uh, probably not, get through all of them. There's a significant amount, and they vary greatly. And so we'll just start with the first question that came in. Uh, it was written by D. I don't know where 
that she lives, but she writes, hello, Mr. Hill and Dr. Piper, after Jesus' resurrection, he went up to heaven. I understand this, uh, this to mean that our veiled in flesh Lord, the Son of Man, is physically located somewhere in his created cosmos. Is it therefore... Uh, is it therefore just a matter of time, given technological advances, before unbelieving scientists searching for extraterrestrial life unwittingly find him? Well, Dee, uh, you're way too young to remember what the first Russian astronaut said when he flew into space, is that he looked for heaven and couldn't find it. It's true that uh, what is called heaven or the third heaven or the highest heaven in the scriptures, that a created place that God made for the gracious manifestation of his presence. Uh, is a created thing, but it is not going to be visible uh, to any human searching. It's in another dimension or whatever. We don't know. We know that it's a real place, uh, and it's a place where we will live. Well, it's a place now where spirits are, and at least two men in bodies, Elijah and um, Enoch. Uh, at the end of the age, heaven will be established on earth. Uh, so in a sense, it's a temporary dwelling place. But no, nobody through technology would ever discover it. Heaven, Scripture is quite clear on that, that uh, it's only through the rebirth that any of us will understand God or ever ever see Him. Thank you for the question. Yes, Steve, thank you. Our next question comes in from Dennis. He writes in from, uh, from Washington State, and it's the subject is on, uh, the, sub, it, the subject is the law written on the heart. And he asks, in Romans 2.15, Paul says, the work of the law is written on their hearts, referring to unbelieving Gentiles. In Jeremiah 31, 33, in the New Covenant prophecy, God says he will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, referring to believers. What is the distinction between the two writings of the law on the heart? Good, Dennis. We'll back up to the first writing of the law on the heart, and that is when Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, uh, they had perfect consciences, that's the law written on the heart, that knew fully uh, the moral law of God. And that's the basis of conscience. That's, at the fall, was not eradicated but greatly effaced. So conscience continues to work in the unregenerate as well as in the regenerate. It's to that conscience that Paul is referring in Romans uh, chapter 2. So that uh, all men have a conscience and between conscience, the law of God on the heart, and natural revelation in the creation, all men are held responsible by God for refusing to worship him. But because of the fall, with the law written on the heart effaced, when God gave the Ten Commandments, uh, that was a gracious act. He then gave the church a um, concrete, pun intended, written version of the law written on the heart. There's no difference between that original moral law that God made known to Adam and Eve in their nature with further revelation and what God gave the church at Mount Sinai. So there then is a replica for the sake of the church that people could know, as well as the world though, with one use of the law is to curtail sin, one's to bring men to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, but it was written, it's external to us. And though the Old Testament saints would have been regenerated, what's promised in the New Covenant is a greater degree of internal conformity and ability to keep the law of God. And so the law written on the heart there is not a new version of the law, but the greater ability now to uh, 
live by the law and to have our consciences corrected by the law. So hope that helps to go through that the four aspects of the law on the heart. Yes, Dennis, thank you for writing in for, and for listening to the program. Our, our third question uh, this morning is, comes in from William. He writes in, it's on Twitter, it's a Twitter question, and he asks, is it appropriate to raise hands in corporate worship when, what sort of hand raising does the psalmist speak of? Well, I've been waiting for somebody to get to this question, William. William, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yes, it is appropriate to lift hands in worship. Let me give a couple of caveats. Not individualistically. We're in corporate worship, and thus the things that we do, we should do corporately. And that's why we teach here the use of the corporate amen and standing uh, for reading of Scripture, standing and kneeling for prayer. But one of the biblical postures that we find in the Old Testament, we find it in the Psalms, um, it's at least referred to in 1 Timothy 2 with the minister leading in prayer to lift his hands, is this corporate lifting of hands unto God. There's a brief uh, comment on this in Terry Johnson's uh, larger book on worship. And in my, my material here in worship, I teach the same thing. Uh, there are a couple of places where one could do it that would be follow a biblical pattern uh, at uh, opening prayer. Uh, oftentimes, the minister will raise his hands on behalf of the congregation and the prayer of invocation. Uh, we all could lift our hands at that point. I like it at the Gloria or what the doxology, which I think is a very good time uh, to do it, or at a uh, another hymn of praise. So I've encouraged people to do. It. I know I know one or two churches uh, that they're beginning to do this. It's hard to get Presbyterians to lift their hands, and it's hard people, to get them to say Amen. Yeah, after the hymns so, or the prayers. But it is a biblical posture in worship. Or, where I don't think we're sinning if we don't do it. But I think that it's useful to help us learn how to worship with the whole being, and not turn worship into merely a mental or uh, spiritual exercise. Uh, Doctor Pope, just a follow up on that. Um, you mentioned it's hard to get Presbyterians to do that. Why, why do you think that is? I just think it goes contrary to patterns of, of generations of worship that is very much mental and uh, has divorced the body. You think people are afraid of looking like charismatics or assembly of God? Is that a part well, of Well, we've seen it abused. Okay. And what often happens is the baby gets thrown out with a wash. Yeah, yeah. And so it's abused. And even now you'll see it at a Presbyterian General Assembly. It's done individualistically. Uh, what we do in posture in corporate worship should be done corporately. I'm Including kneeling and, and, kneeling and all standing. that. And, and the minister, however, when he's uh, like my habit, um, when I do the prayer of invocation, I raise my hands. Is that it's representative. Is that, and that is also dealt with. I think Terry deals with that in his yeah, book as well. Yeah, he does. Okay, very good. Thank you again for the question uh, using the Twitter uh, option for the listeners there. If you do want to submit questions uh, through Twitter, you can do that. You, you just make sure you use ha hashtag GPTSFP. It just stands for the Seminary Faith Practice, okay? Uh, our next question comes in from Arthur. He writes in from uh, Pennsylvania. No, Long you skipped Reform Guy, didn't you? I don't think so. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I That's did. okay. That's no, okay. You're, right. you're, you're correct. Well, Arthur writes in. He's a longtime listener to the program, and uh, and he writes in, and the question is to do with books written by authors who have taught some errors. And his question is, in the Reformed community, we have seen a lot of books written in the past 25 years by authors who have much good to teach, but who, are also, but who also teach error. I think of the Federal Vision and New Perspectives on Paul, writers, men like Douglas Wilson and Archbishop Wright. 
not all these authors write not all these authors write uh, error but when they turn from truth to error i wonder how to approach their later works as a pastor and a scholar how am i to use their books intelligently and should i recommend their books to the average member who sadly does not read or does not have time to read deeply enough to separate truth from error thank you author always good to hear from you you're a good friend I think that uh, pastors and scholars should be willing to use books written by even people who are, are more erroneous uh, than these people. Calvin said that we affirm truth wherever we find it. In the Institute, you'll find him quoting any number of, of early church medieval writers uh, when they're saying something that's uh, true interpretation of the Scripture. So I think in our case, yes, we should. But I think in the church, it's very different. I know a lot of churches have removed books from their book table by these men. And I think that that's wise because it's not simply that, that the uh, average Christian can't discern truth from error in the book. You get a good book by a man who's got some really serious errors. Uh, a person goes to the bookstore and next thing you know, oh, no, I really like that book by him. So you, they pick up that one and buy it with little or no uh, discernment. So I don't tend to recommend uh, a book, um, even a good book, to an um, average Christian who's not going to have a, a lot of discernment, a good book by a person who teaches serious error. And I would not, I don't like to quote writers in sermons anyway, but in a paper or an article, um, I you know, if it's a done at a for the classroom or a scholarly level, I'm, I might quote that writer. But again, if it's a popular piece, I'm probably not going to do so. Uh, if I really felt compelled to do so, I'd have to put a footnote that uh, this writer has good things to say on this topic, but overall, I don't recommend him. Well, it's a very good question uh, in our day uh, with a lot of this out there, and uh, so how to handle it pastorally if it is always. Good, uh, a good thing to know. And, uh, and Arthur, I do thank you for writing in. I apologize, I did not unmute myself there, um, so you probably didn't hear half of what I just said. But we're going to move on. <laughs> um, the next question comes um, from anonymous uh, on the question of excommunication. He asks, "How can we truly excommunicate our covenant children who have not been admitted to the Lord's table if excommunication is barring professing Christians from the Lord's table?" Uh, thank you. Um Anonymous, reformed guy. Um, it's really just a matter of nomenclature. Mm -hmm. That technically excommunication is removing a person from the Lord's table. Uh, we don't have, you know, we could strike the person from the role. But the church ought to have a way of dealing with young adult, baptized uh, covenant members who have refused to make covenant with Christ. And in a sense, we are because we're barring them from ever coming to the table until they repent it. So we've cut them off from opportunity to the table. They would come back and make a profession of faith and be admitted to the table. But it, you're right. L literally, it is, uh, it's not the proper word, but normally I just explain, here's what we mean by this, but we are cutting them off from membership in the church. It is, we should never forget that our baptized children are members of the church, but they're not communion members. And so we don't want to say they want to 
when a youngster makes a profession of faith that they've joined the church. You know, they've made covenant with God, they've owned their covenant with God, and now they're admitted to, to the Lord's table. So whatever nomenclature is used, when a, a person late teens, early 20s refuses to own Christ in their covenant vows, then they should, I think, be removed from the church role. Mm. Very good question. Just to follow up, Dr. Pleppa, how, how practically then in the in the area of discipline uh, do we deal with our covenant children who are not uh, communing members? Other than just the excommunication issue, you just answered that. Well, I think that when we see in the uh, Old Testament and the law that if a child became rebellious, the parents brought that child to the elders. I think there should come a point, again, if a child is persistently rebellious, uh, that that child should be brought before the elders and should be uh, received admonishment and uh, strong exhortations to repent. And if they continue in that course up through uh, their later teen years, then they should be put out of the church. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you uh, for the question. Um, and our next one comes from Josh. We're, we're moving along pretty this well here. This is not really so. a question, though. I don't know if we need to discuss it. Um, you're right. It's a resource thank for me, and I appreciate you. it, Josh. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, I didn't do my homework, apparently. Um, okay, so we'll skip we'll that. Just, we did, we've been discussing what we should sing, and Josh simply sent me a, um, we should make it available to you all, that the presbyterianplotter.blogspot, presbyterianplotter.blogspot.com, in March of 2014, uh, has an article on the history of, of the Scottish metrical psalms that shows that they did sing the Gloria after each psalm, mm -hmm. uh, which at least gives away the argument that we should only sing inspired uh, psalms. So thank you for that reference, Josh. I am working on this, Lord willing, doing a piece on the use of that language in the confession of faith so i appreciate this a lot yeah thank you for the resource and i will make that available um under this podcast uh, section when it comes out um uh, on the confessingourhope.com website israel writes in from from uh rio rio de janeiro uh, where you were you were weren't you just there not in rio i was with, i was with uh davi okay well he writes in it's it's a israel no israel's his father yes it's a question on Jude 1 9, and he wants to know what the Reformed interpretation of Jude 1 9 is, but even the Archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. Did not rail against him. Right. Israel, um, there is no Reformed interpretation. There are a number of, this is one of those areas that I think that we will not know the answer to the historical event until we're in heaven. Mm -hmm. So we have to distinguish between the event and the principle. The events, uh, some say that um, this was an attempt by Satan to get the burial site of Moses' body identified so the people who were prone to idolatry would turn it into a shrine and idolatry. That, to me, that makes the most sense. Uh, the devil had no other right to, to the body. Um, uh, there are some that say actually it refers to the Old Testament church. Uh, but I really think that the first makes the most sense. But the principle is that even an archangel uh, doesn't need to um, personally to uh, rail against the devil. Uh, we say, Christ rebuke you, uh, Christ deliver me from your temptation. So we turn to Christ 
and let Christ. And again, you see in, the, in the, some of the charismatic churches, people are going to rebuking the devil. And I think that would be against what we have in Jude 1.9. But mm. we can say Christ mm-hmm. rebuke you. Mm. Interesting. Well, thank you for the question. And, um, and Dr. Pipe, I don't know how to deal with this next one. I mean, it's really not a question. It's a statement regarding the Women's Study Committee at the PCA General Assembly. Um, do you want to yeah, interact? Yeah, I, I do want to answer. Interact with that, okay? Yeah. The, the 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 writer, the listener, uh, simply asked if the if the um, protest that Dr. Piper drafted and, and submitted to the General Assembly um, Thursday evening in Mobile, Alabama, could be reprinted. It has been. Um, so, speak, please, sir. Okay, Robert. Thank you. Uh, for those on the podcast that perhaps are unaware of the context. At the latest assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America that met in Mobile, a study committee, uh, actually a top-down committee, recommended uh, that uh, the assembly appoint a, a study committee to study the role of women and its relation to ordination. Uh, they put women on that committee, or the, rec- the motion did, and recommended a pastoral letter which assumed that they figured that we were going to make a big change in what we were doing. Uh, that overture was soundly defeated by the committee to which it went. In fact, Mr. Hill was on that committee. It was like 3 to 1 or something like 31 that. 31 to 7. 31 to 7. Uh, whereas the Assembly then passed it um, with a small but significant majority. Uh, I wrote a protest that it's not well written because all we had was supper time to do it. Somebody came back that Thursday night after the worship service to do serious business, and uh, we were going to be at least 11.30 or 12. Uh, so, uh, and in that overture, I added the word apparent to the third ground, second or third ground, um, which was not in my original written copy, but I put it in there, and then that was clarified on the floor. Uh, somebody immediately after it was accepted, the, the assembly has to accept a protest that it's in temperate language, and it was accepted as temperate language. Somebody raised objection that after the fact, which was too late. So as we were adjourning, uh, about 11.40 or something like that, a person uh, probably, I don't know, I'm glad he did it because it just draws more attention to the protest, brought a motion that the assembly takes objection to one piece of language that I had to say that it was not temperate. And so that passed as people were walking out the door. I mean, it really was uh, not uh, parliamentarily. They should have ruled it out of order. But anyway, they did. So you can see the original protest uh, on my uh, website, josephpiper.com, and it's being printed in the seminary um, quarterly foundations piece that uh, Gary Mose is doing, so it'll be printed there as well. And watch, Lord willing, as I get settled from my trip, I'll start writing now on a number of issues. I'm going to do a lengthy exposition of 1 Timothy uh, 2 and 3, and then also I'm going to be writing about the role of ruling elders. This is what's happening. It was something like 4 to 1 It was awful at this assembly, yep. and the church will go liberal if our ruling elders can't be there. And it's financially prohibitive. It is time-wise prohibitive. Um, every year they tell us they're going to get better next year. They said being mobile this year, we'll have more ruling elders. We had less. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a lot more ministers than normal, and I think because of the issue. 
uh, people, there were two issues that people wanted to get passed through the assembly. And so uh, there were more ministers there of probably a, a, a new school Presbyterian stamp. And so that made the odds even uh, more drastic. Well, thank you for that. Uh, just a programming note for those listening live, and we do have a, a significant number, and very thankful for you listening uh, this morning uh, to these questions and Dr. Pepper's answers. Just a programming note for you. Um, coming up on Monday next week, I'll be t sitting down with Daniel Jarstifer. He's a teaching elder in the PCA, and, we're, and he and I are going to uh, talk about the General Assembly uh, a summary wrap-up, as we've done with uh, every year that I've been doing this uh, each summer. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I just finished an interview with Dr. David Hall yesterday, no, I'm sorry, two days ago, um, specifically on the Women's Study Committee and the article he wrote, and it's on the Aquila Report, and you can search for it's it also there. On my website. And it's also on Dr. Pipa's website. Uh, it was get, we got permission to put it there as well, um, where he deals with what Dr. Pipe alluded to, the top-down uh, recommendation of the permanent committee that came to the admin committee, which I served on. And this is not historically how we've done things. The PCA is a grassroots denomination, and so this was backwards uh, in principle. And so Dr. Hall, uh, Dr. David Hall did a fantastic job. I so strongly encourage you to listen to that interview. He, he nailed it. Put the nail hit hit the nail on the head, and so look for that in future days. For those who are listening to the recording, it's already out, and you can hear it. But those listening live, it will be coming out in the next week and a half or so. So uh, stay tuned for that. Just a little programming note. Uh, the next question comes in from anonymous, and, and we do encourage anonymous. If you don't want to leave your name, you don't have to. It's not necessary. It's this, the issue that we want to hear. And so uh, this question is on the, the, the issue of systematic theology, and it, again, it's tied to the General Assembly. And at this year's General Assembly, Dr. Piper, Covenant Theological Seminary decided to rename their systematic theology department as missional theology. In your view, is this a problem? Why does GPTS use the heading systematic theology? Uh, very good, anonymous. I don't know why you have to be anonymous on this one. But anyway, um, there are some serious problems um, coming. Let me just tell you right now, I would have this position whether I was at Greenville Seminary or not. Mm -hmm. uh, there are serious problems with uh, uh, changing this department to Mitchell Theology. There's two problems. Uh, the broader problem is the whole concept of missional. The term comes out of neo-orthodoxy. It has to do with an approach to missions that is, um, I think, uh, much less biblical uh, in its concentration than uh, what we've understood for years as the church's responsibility in missions. It's a fad word. Not that everybody uses it then, is, is coming, but when you borrow a word from bad theology, uh, it's, it's never useful. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the very term itself, even used in the missions department, missions and evangelism, we don't use the word here at Greenville Seminary. At least that's my recommendation to all the faculty. I don't use it. Dr. Kurt, in fact, that would be a good podcast to have him discuss Absolutely. the whole concept sure. of mission. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Now, the second is missions is not what drives systematic theology. Systematic theology should drive missions. Historically, uh, the church has divided the curriculum for ministerial training as well as simply for the life of the Christian into um, biblical studies, Old and New Testament, uh, historical studies, church history, uh, biblical theology, 
which then looks at the unfolding progressive plan of redemption from Genesis through Revelation, and systematic. Systematic, in my opinion, is the queen of the sciences. It is the top of the pyramid. And so we get the biblical content. We understand how the Old Testament, or how the church is understood. We should never do our, our exegesis in a vacuum. We look at the unfolding of themes like covenant and, and other themes in Scripture. And on the basis of the exegesis of, of this and of the church, we develop then the system of truth, which is what you have in the Westminster Confession or in the great uh, theologies. So it's a big mistake. It should scare the church. It is showing a, a, a complete uh, different direction of study. There's, it's going to involve relativism. It's going to involve contextualization, which neither one of these things should have anything to do with systematic theology. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's already a couple of pieces have been written. I've been traveling. I've not had time to uh, uh, see some of the stuff that's been written except some stuff that was on Facebook. But I just hope that the churches out there and the ruling elders in particular will be up in arms about this. Realize it's not a matter of simply what are we going to call it. There's a a huge philosophical change is taking place here, or either a big PR change, but neither one of them is good because you're doing away with the classical distinctions that are necessary for the proper understanding of, of the truth of Scripture and for the preparation of ministers. Mm. Just a follow-up, Dr. Pipe. I, I have seen um, some of the things you were mentioned. Just a, um, some of the pushback uh, to the, the objections that you've just raised, which I agree with, uh, have been, well, they're not changing the course material under the heading. It's the same material. They just changed the name of the department. Does that affect how well, you said, see it? As I said, if it's simply a PR thing, it's still aiming at a completely different direction. Why? Mm -hmm. What are you trying to be relevant about? Is it, you know, missio the whole people are attracted to missional, um, aren't normally going to be attracted to a Reformed seminary. Mm. So who are you trying to attract, and is that honest then? If this is really going to be, we're not changing the content, then let's call it what it is. That's my answer. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm sure there's going to be much. By the way, for those that have, I've, we have seen a number of questions like this, yes, we teach systematic theology. In fact, uh, our curriculum, we have an introductory course that a student takes his first year, Introduction to Reformed Theology. That's the course I always coveted. I had it under Dr. Smith when he started Reformed Seminary. And uh, when I came here, of course, he taught it. And uh, um, when he finally had to step down, that was the course above all courses that I longed to teach. Yeah, it goes yep. through the Westminster Standards, and we'd get into Calvin's Institutes. It lays a foundation for the next um, three and a half years of study. But then we have uh, Introduction Prolegomena. Um, Man and Sin, Christ and Salvation, Ecclesiology, and Eschatology. We also have what Dr. McGraw has said was always a part of prolegomena, Reformed Spirituality. And so we have a very thorough systematics program. But again, we're not neglecting biblical studies. We've changed our curriculum. In addition to biblical, Old Testament and Biblical Theology, we now have six biblical uh, content courses. These aren't simply survey courses. This gets into the whole genre of literature and, and the themes and stuff like that. So we have three for Old Testament and three for New Testament. So we're not 
giving up anything to have the systematics, and we also have a very aggressive church history program. If you come to Greenville Seminary, we're going to expect you to work. We're going to expect you to know your languages when you graduate. That's why it's a four-year curriculum. But you can come here for four years and still spend less money than you would in a three-year Presbyterian seminary and get a very good education. Yep, and you get to live in Greenville, which is uh, one of the better cities probably in America. Uh, at least that's what the magazines tell you. That's what they tell you. Um, so um, I wish I'd raised my family here. Um, it was an enjoyable five years, a very beautiful city, and um, and very thankful for the seminary and my time here, though it was difficult at times, but that's to be expected um, in this kind of regimen. Our next question comes in, Dr. Piper. I'm sure you're going to love this question. Um, so do I. Um, I say that with you a little bit of humor, um, but uh, I, I don't see a name. So anyway, the question uh, is simply... Um, John Kelly. Okay, John, John Kelly writes in, how do we deal with the Christian liberty of pipe smoking or cigar smoking? How can we support this practice from Scripture? Well, John, we, uh, so we support it from Scripture with our whole view of the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible is quite clear in its revelation of what is sin and what is not sin. And then we have the area that's called the adiaphora. These are areas on which the Scripture is absolutely silent. Now, when it comes to these areas, each Christian has a responsibility before God, each parent for his children, and then each Christian as an adult before God, of how he does these things. We could put it with um, uh, playing golf, uh, watching television, uh, wearing makeup, all of these things come along in the, in the same uh, sphere. So when the Bible speaks to something, then we need to speak to it. So um, does pipe smoking or cigar smoking harm one's health? No, definitely not in moderation. In fact, um, there are Surgeon General reports from a number of years ago before the anti-smoking lobby got so – this is part of progressivism uh, – that cigar smokers and pipe smokers outlive non-smokers. Because there's a lifestyle that's attached to it. It's, it's a relaxation. So uh, it's not harming the body uh, if it's done in moderation. Now, and the second biblical principle is addiction. If a person has to um, smoke a cigar or a pipe and cannot be content uh, without having it, um, then that's something that person needs to deal with. But even then, it comes to a point of the individual's conscience. I can't decide for someone else what mo- their moderation is or what uh, um, their practices are. I just, for myself, and it, it goes, it's not just pipes and cigars. It can be coffee. It can be Coke. I know a lot of people that uh, don't use a cigar or a pipe that abuse uh, soda. Uh, and so abuse is the issue Lack of moderation, addiction. But when the Bible is silent on something, we dare not call it a sin. Now, somebody will say, well, yeah, but they didn't know what we know today about uh, uh, smoke and, and mm. lung cancer, stuff like that. Well, again, we're not talking even – but I'll even put here cigarettes. I don't like cigarettes. But, again, in moderation, I have no right to say that it's a sin. Uh, and there is no proof that moderate cigarette smoking, even inhaling – uh, causes any um, lung or cancer problems. Excessive abuse does by all means. There's not an iota of evidence about secondhand smoke uh, causing uh, problems. It's a nice to be polite. Uh, if somebody's going to smoke a cigarette, I'd like them to ask me first, do you mind? Uh, in the same way with a pipe or, uh, or a cigar. 
it's not as much a problem now because in most states you can't do it anywhere mm-hmm. inside a building. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's, it's a matter of what we call Christian liberty. Now, on the other hand, it's not the essence of Christian liberty, and sometimes young folks coming to the Reformed faith, you know, let their freak flag fly. Christian liberty is that Christ has delivered us from the bondage of sin. That's the great liberty that we have. And then our consciences are free from the commandments of men. That is also important. What happens when people add to God's word, uh, Jesus says in Mark 7, first they begin to neglect the word and then they invalidate the word. Mm -hmm. And if you just do your own personal survey, John, I think you will find that the people that are most strong on these man-made laws – are going to be weaker on God's law, particularly Sabbath, the, the Christian Sabbath, and uh, other things. Well, that's Thank a, you, John. Very wise, very wise answer. And I just learned a new phrase that'll probably come out some point in the, in the next in the future: the freak flag. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. I've heard other things, uh, but that's uh, well, you're not from the right generation. Yeah. Well, we're not all that far away. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. Different generations entirely. But it's a good question and, and one we need to think through. And, and as Dr. Piper wisely has said, let's not call people out for sins that aren't sin necessarily if God's Word doesn't say it. The next question is lengthy. Well, let's divide them. Do one first. Yes, okay. And the next question is quite lengthy. Uh, but thank, I'm thankful to the, to the listener uh, who is also a student here at the seminary. Um, and I think maybe we should charge. I'm just kidding. But he, he gave me some short versions of the questions. So I'm going to read those. And Dr. Piper has the lengthy ones in front so he understands the context. But uh, Zach writes in from Pennsylvania. And he asks, uh, uh, what considerations ought to guide a preacher's planning of a sermon series? Zach, it's a, uh, an excellent question. I actually, I deal with this in uh, Preaching Practicum 2. Uh, and when I do different seminars and stuff, um, for me, preaching, the hardest thing about preaching is trying to decide what to preach on. And so the first thing that's very useful is to do is to preach through books, which I think is the, is the normal biblical reformed practice, uh, is the foundation of ministry with um, ad hoc sermons to particular issues or short series that would address other issues or whatever. So how does one determine, uh, say you're going to your church, and how do you determine um, the next book to preach through? And I think in your, in your church, you actually said one that's beginning a um, uh, pastoral ministry or in the pastoral ministry. Well, um, the first thing I think that we should do is we pray about this and consider our congregation, what has been taught, what are the pastoral needs that we see, and we should come up with two or three uh, ideas. My practice is then to take those suggestions to the session, their co-pastors, and explain why, but say, I want you to take a month before our next meeting to pray about these things. Um, and before we do that, we'll talk about the congregation. We'll talk about what pastoral needs the session sees there. We also consider what have we just been through what are we doing in our various Bible studies? What are we studying in Sunday school? So there's a, a complement, a blending uh, that's taking place here. So you come back the next session meeting, and uh, I, I skipped a point. So the, any elders at that point would also throw on the table a book they'd like to have preach. So all right, we've got three or four books. We're going to pray about it. We'll come back next month and make a decision. So we come back next month, and 
whatever the majority uh, is, uh, that's the, the book then that I take up next. Now, to do this well, you're going to need a five- or six-month lead time. Mm-hmm. If you go into a new church, it's very important that you find out what has been preached for the last couple of years. And so you want to see if they've got bulletins or whatever. If not, you talk to the elders and you find out what's, what's been going on. Even when I go as a pulpit supply, uh, I always try to interact with the pastor or the elders. Uh, what are there particular needs you have or what has been preached lately uh, so that I'm just coming in and trying to, to fit in. So, But I do really encourage men to incorporate ruling elders into this discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an excellent question. It's, we, when we seek God's will in anything else, you know, we recognize there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. But here... It's often the pastor in the isolation of the study, thinking that uh, he's got to pray and determine. Now, it's, it's an emergency. Uh, terrible things happen in the community or in the nation or around the world, and the pastor surely has the freedom to lay aside his series and that Sunday preach on that particular thing. In fact, we should have more of that, Absolutely. I think, than we do. But for long-range planning, get the elders involved. Now, admittedly, uh, in a lot of sessions today, they're not going to be much help at first because nobody's ever asked them. Mm-hmm. So part of it's a training process, but you're still pulling them in and getting them trained. Yep. And one of the, I think one of the added benefits to doing that is um, as a teaching elder and a minister in the church, you're, you're expressing your desire to have the elders' involvement, which is going to spill over into other areas. They're going to feel like they're part and right. parcel of the solutions in the church. They're not just there as administrative rubber stamps. Right. So it's a very wise uh, way to approach this. Zach, the next question uh, from Zach is, what are the top three issues or questions facing the church today for which it would be helpful to have a new book from a confessional Presbyterian author? Oof. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I don't know. Um, there are good books coming out all the time. I think in terms of current situation, uh, preaching, the role of women, uh, Sabbath, mm-hmm. those obviously continue to need to be addressed. Now, the Sabbath's being addressed. There are good books available. I just did a little short pamphlet for uh, uh, Christian Heritage, about 35-page thing on Is the Sabbath for Today. That's an excellent series, by the way, that Dr. McGraw and Dr. Beakey uh, edit. Um, I just think we need to keep writing books for the church, not for the academia, Mm. from confessional Presbyterian uh, perspectives. So it'll vary from place to place or from a man's burden. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't uh, – we keep we must keep addressing all the issues. So right today now we've got Trinitarianisms on the front, front burner. And a good book on Trinitarianism could be useful. There are a lot of things with Christian piety uh, that would be quite – uh, useful uh, to be considered today. So, um, in terms of what books should be written, um, I think it's just it's wide open. Any of the doctrines of the Westminster standards. 
Just a follow-up, Dr. Piper, given our climate um, with the Internet, uh, with uh, blogging, um, do you think it's, it it'd be better to address some of the issues, whatever those issues may be, in a shorter set, uh, uh, format, uh, like using the Internet, uh, like an online journal or a blog or, or that kind of thing, as opposed to full-length books, given some of the fallout from the internet age and, and attention deficit people just can't seem to read 300 pages and digest it well i think the short pieces i still think the pamphlets like the third i mean nobody wants to read 34 pages on the internet i mean mm -hmm. it, it gives itself to a much briefer discussion and that's fine but i do think that shorter pieces that's why I think this pamphlet series and other pamphlet series are very useful because we're not an age of readers. But on the other hand, we want, we don't want to further the decline in people's ability to think critically or to read. So normally I would think a book, 150 pages or whatever, uh, is to get people trained would be the, the way to go. Now, if it's a commentary, that's very different, particularly if it's not sure. one that they're sure. going to... Um, read through. Now, little advert here, Dr. Shaw's commentary on Ecclesiastes has just been approved by a banner of truth. Yeah, great. As news. he was explaining that, he said he's written it for the popular reader, and it's one that can be read through uh, like a book, rather than to be used simply for studying the passage of Scripture. Yeah. Well, thank you. And just a, a programming note, we'll certainly be interviewing Dr. Shaw, Lord willing, as um, when that book is released on Ecclesiastes, and also uh, the Reformation Heritage Book series that Dr. Piper mentioned. Um, we've done a number of interviews on them uh, in the past, so you can find those, including Dr. McGraw's uh, Is the Trinity Practical? Uh, that has not been released publicly yet. It will be in a few weeks, and I can tell you uh, it's already been recorded. It was a fantastic interview. Dr. Dr. McGraw, it was so encouraging. So stay tuned for that um, in the next few weeks. Jack writes in um, on the subject of covenant theology, uh, covenant theology critique. The, the question is related to critiquing it. And he asked, how would you respond to the critique that, inverse to dispensationalism, covenant theology has a tendency to Christianize the Old Testament and Judaize the New? In other words, to project too much distinct New Testament truth back into the progress of, progress of revelation or carry too much distinct Old Testament polity or precepts forward. Or are contemporary Reformed theologians more alert to this issue than those of years past? Okay, Jack. Um, I would not agree with you that there is a tendency to Christianize the Old Testament and Judaize the New. I don't think there was in the past. I don't think there is today in covenant theology. The old saying, I think maybe it was Augustine who first said it, that the New Testament's hidden in the Old, the Old Testament is revealed in the New, really gets to the issue, and that is that it's one book, it's not two. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a continuity and a progressive unfolding of revelation, not diverse or antithetical, but progressive. So in the same way you build a house and you go over a period of time, you add, but you have to build on a certain foundation. It's you must follow the steps in the correct order. And that's what covenant theology has 
has done. I remind you of what our Savior said to the men on the road um, when he sat with them uh, at supper, beginning uh, Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things according concerning himself and the scriptures. And then to the 11, um, verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. All the scriptures point to Christ. And so I, as we unfold these scriptures, we're looking for uh, predictions and prophecies, uh, types and shadows. Remind you again of the language of the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith as it contrasts uh, the two covenants in chapter 7. Covenant, paragraph 5, was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So what biblical theology is doing, uh, Jack, is looking at, all right, in the Mosaic period, here's the foundations laid. What truths are laid out here uh, are building blocks. But since we read the Bible as a whole, when I'm teaching on Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image then although I would say the Trinity is not <laughs> but in a shadowy form revealed in the Old Testament, this is obviously a foundation stone. Coupled with Elohim, the plural name of God, that takes singular verbs, coupled with the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in creation, and what Solomon says in Proverbs 8 about the role of uh, the wisdom of God, whom we know as the Logos, the Son of God, we've got a foundation for the Trinity. And it would, it would be foolish not to teach that now in, as we shine the light of the New Testament. So as we're interpreting Old Testament, yes, we say, here's what the original writer was saying, and but here is also what he's laying the foundation for uh, the sake of the church, and so it's one unified scripture. Now in a sermon, it was told me when I was in seminary, we'd tell our students, don't ever preach a sermon that a rabbi could preach. You're dealing with the Old Testament. You must always bring the truth of the Old Testament back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. I don't think he is in every passage, but every sermon needs to go from that passage of the truth that's laid out there to how a New Testament Christian understands that. We're not Old Testament saints. And so we must understand the Old Testament. As it says here, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. At that point, it was just the Old Testament. But it was to understand the Old Testament in terms of its fulfillment in him. 
So I, I've not seen a problem. Uh, I've seen the reverse. I, can, I know a good friend of mine, who, who, an older man, who actually in the early days taught at Greenville Seminary, who in a piece he has in that book edited by uh, Sam Logan, um, Preachers and Preaching, it's the opposite title of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Anyway, he says we shouldn't ever open up an Old Testament text in terms of uh, of anything that's not there clearly in it. But no, I think we have to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New. Very good question, and, and thank you for, for writing in. Just a, a time note for Dr. Piper. We have about five minutes. Um, is there any particular question you would like to answer, or do you want me to just take the next one? Let's just go to the next one. I think we can do it in three minutes is what I have. Okay. Um, John writes in on the perpetual virginity of Mary. And he asks, uh, we were doing a general review of Calvin's Institutes in Sunday School a few months ago. Our well-educated instructor mentioned in passing that Calvin believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Did Calvin believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary? Furthermore, I understand that Martin Luther and John Wesley also supported this doctrine. Can you shed more light on this subject? What do they say of James and Jude? Thank you for all your faithful service at GPTS and in this ministry. Okay, John, this one uh, pushed me to do some more research, and it seems that a great number of the early reformers, Luther, uh, Zwingli, um, others, did set forth the perpetual virginity of Mary. What I've been able to do thus far is to see that Calvin says that Scripture is silent. So he doesn't, uh, at least in some places, he doesn't say that... uh, she was, but he does. He says scripture that leaves that one silent. So let's not be curious about it. Uh, how then does he answer the matter of James uh, and Jude and and the sisters? Is that it is a Hebraism at times to refer to uh, close kin as brothers and sisters, and so cousins and and whatever. That's one way they dealt with it. The other was that it could have been Joseph's children by uh, a former uh, marriage. Uh, I. Th- and then I looked, you can get a summary of how the Reformers approached this in Turretin, Volume 2, I think it's pages 245 and 246. Uh, and even his tone seems to me to be a bit uh, defensive. I, I think it's indefensible uh, that uh, God would simply have used Joseph so that Mary would have legitimacy and Christ would have legitimacy. Uh, it's part of godliness to live together in a glorious sexual relationship. There's nothing demeaning about it whatsoever. So I would say that, yes, many of the Reformers, and Calvin surely wasn't uh, anyway asserting that she wasn't a virgin perpetually, were wrong on that subject. We've grown. I mean, even under, under the Puritans, uh, there was a great development in terms of the role of sexual relationships in marriage. Remember, these men were coming out of Romanism. The only purpose of marriage was to have children. Uh, they, they, they came a long ways to honor marriage, uh, but uh, there's still, in this place, I think, a vestige of, of the past that just didn't completely get shed, which ought to make all of us humble. What baggage are we carrying with us out of our culture as we approach the, uh, as we approach the Scriptures? Now, Calvin was very clear that there was no vow of, of uh, chastity or celibacy on Mary's part. Some take the language, how shall this be? I have not known a man. Um, 
And Calvin's quite clear that no, she did not take any kind of ungodly, sinful vow. Well, I appreciate the question, and, and for the, do apologize. I probably lost all of our live listeners, but it's at, we're at the end anyway, so it probably didn't hurt you all that much. Um, we just lost internet connection, or at least I did here at the seminary, but. Oh. Um, but I do, um, I do apologize for that. Well, Dr. Piper, again, as always, uh, I, I so much enjoy uh, personally doing this program with you, and I know listeners from from a, from a lot of in a lot of different places across the world uh, have conveyed that um, sentiment uh, additionally. And so, do thank you again for taking the time. It's been I know it's just a busy month for you, and you just got back into town yesterday and doing this today, and and so. Again, appreciate it um, very much. Thank you, Bill. Love this program. It's great to do it. You want to give them the next date? I will. Um, August 16th. Uh, that is, I believe it's a Tuesday. Uh, don't quote me on that. I'm, 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 I'm in a little bit of a fog. I'm moving this week, as everybody knows. And, uh, But be that as it may, it's August 16th. I do know that. And it's at 9.15 in the morning. And then, of course, we'll schedule uh, into That's the semester. Correct. We can quote you on that. Um, I, okay, great. You now can quote me on that. I've been approved officially um, by the president of the seminary. It's, it's Tuesday, August 16th, 9.15 in the morning, Eastern Time, and uh, we'll do it live as we always have. And um, so write your questions, uh, send them in, and um, and we look forward to, um, uh, to receiving those. There's a number of questions we did not get to today, and I don't want anybody to panic. Uh, you will be heard. Uh, it just, it'll be next time on the program well, of course if we get enough questions we'll as i've said in the past we'll do two programs a month to make sure that we can stay current so keep those questions these probably the best most diverse set of questions we've had yet and we've got some uh, really uh, good ones yet remaining out there so uh, please keep them coming absolutely and of course if you do write a question in and dr Pepper does use it and i can't imagine i don't know of one that he hasn't used uh, you will receive ten dollars off a purchase at the banner of truth store so there is some advantage there as well let me uh, just uh, spotlight one item uh, for the podcast um we are working on a new segment um that uh, that uh, that i think is important uh, number one to help people know what we're doing here at the seminary and the kind of men we're, uh, we're we're training and what they're doing in their ministries and so we're spotlighting graduates we're calling it graduate spotlight uh, it'll be probably four times a year where we'll do 30 minutes of two different men who have graduated from the seminary and um, talk about their ministry, their their work, their how is it going, and uh, prayer requests, needs that they may have. And so look forward to that. And then in addition to that, each month we're going to do a small five-minute spotlight where a graduate will simply send me an MP3 file of, of what's going on, five minutes, real brief, uh, where he's laboring, and we'll just drop that into a, to a podcast that we have uh, that we. Uh, would normally do so look for that uh starting in september we're already actively working on that uh even as i speak so uh, look forward to that in the very new near future uh in addition uh, if you want to know what's coming up on the program it's simple go to the website confessingourhope.com uh, click on the coming up uh, link and it will give you the full list of all uh, of our guests and topics that we are uh, working on or have already done uh, as the case may be so we do thank you, our listeners. Uh, you make this program possible, and we thank you for your faithful um, uh, listening to it and for your questions and for uh, the feedback and the encouragement. And so until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless you.